I'm Jason Baylor-Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting, conversations on contemporary art and culture in Los Angeles and beyond. Today's guest is John Seal. He's a painter based in L.A., but he has traveled and lived all over the United States. I wanted to start the introduction with a quote by John that he told one of his students. It gives you a sense of how we talk about work and being an artist. He said, the artist is constantly wavering between divine intervention and pitiful madness. He meant it to be humorous, but it's also true in this, in this really bitter, sweet sort of way. In the interview, we talk about the way he goes about producing the work, how he thinks about making the work. He, he said something very meaningful to me as well about the relationship that you carry on with other people in your life. And part of it is becoming the person that you've advertised being and the encouragement from that person to become what you said you're going to be. I really thank John for taking the time to come on and having such an honest and sort of heartfelt back and forth about where he's at in life and in his art and his work. So here's John. All right, John, welcome to the show. Ah, thanks. 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 Uh, it's an honor to be here and a pleasure. We were, I just mentioned this when you came in and I realized we haven't ever had a proper art conversation. Every time we meet up or we, we talk, we're at an opening or something. So <laughs> it, it's great to have you in here so we can finally talk art. Right. Well, it's not that we never talk. I mean, I think we're probably talking about art. We talk if, about if the we, shows uh-huh. that we're seeing at the time. But we've never had a conversation or sat down outside of those shows, I don't think. Yeah, true. I mean, I, maybe that's a symptom of living in L.A., actually. You think I, so? Yeah, I find that you sound suspect in that. I, I feel like... Well, I'm just asking in what way. Oh, um, I, I feel like the conversations about art are... Uh, how to say this without incriminating myself <laughs> and my friends. Uh, I, I feel like they, they, they can be a bit shallow outside of a studio context outside yeah, of an, actually outside of having a, a an actual studio visit where you know the, the the emphasis is going to be only talking about art i find you know when you're out at shows parties bars whatever you, you always talk a little bit about like you think you're doing like a cursory checklist of all the things you're supposed to say about a show and like go through or what do you think well, if there were even that, I mean, I, I feel like it's, you know, like, did you see this? Yes. What would you think? Oh, I don't know. You know, it's like that, 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 that tends to be like the, the general uh, tenor of a conversation about yeah. art outside of an actual studio. It, it really depends upon who you're talking to, but it's, it, it's much more rare here, which actually in some ways is a, it can have its advantages, I think. But I do miss, you know, being at a bar with a friend and like really digging in deep critical into someone you know's artwork and, and knowing that that's okay. And you know the difference between this because you were in New York for a while. Right. Yeah. I do not want to talk about New York versus LA, but, but it's, it's, no, it's, it's just differences, but it's, it's real different, but it, but it's, it's because, because the sociality here is so different. I think that there can be a reticence to talk about one's peers work critically here. That doesn't really exist in New York where, I mean, I feel like, Really? And, and maybe things have really changed in general. I mean, you know, I haven't been in, I lived here for seven years now. So like maybe things in New York are really different now too. But I feel like you, you could basically condemn and damn someone that you love very much for what their last show amongst friends or even to them. And it was relatively understood that, you know, yeah, 
you don't disrespect this person, but this is these are important issues to talk about. That makes me sound like an asshole. But yeah, um, you think that's here? No, well, here, here, I think, I think people really avoid that that subject because they, they do avoid it. They do avoid it. Because, I agree. Because because they don't really want to be caught bad mouthing. Nobody wants to bad mouth anybody here. Yeah, and but the, see, but that, that's what I mean. The, the sociality is different because it's like in in New York, it's expected and it's accepted. And it's almost thought, I mean, at least it used to be, I don't know, it, it, to be sort of necessary to have these conversations. And everyone knows that doesn't mean you're not going to be friends with that person. Or you're not going to love that person or they're not going to love you. You just know that it's important to talk about. That was one of the first things I was actually warned about when I came out here. I had a friend who um, went to school out here and he was like, hey, just so you know, don't say anything bad when you go into that place because people will be listening and you're not supposed to say anything bad about the work. How does that how does that even function? And it's true. I mean, I was warned that. I mean, actually, before moving out here, uh, a friend had said, I, I was just asking anyone who had had any experience living in L.A. as an artist, what they thought about living in L.A., what the advantages and disadvantages might be. A friend who'd grown up in California and is still a painter in New York had just warned. It's like, well, it's nice out there, but if as if, if you're prepared to just give up all criticality and, and any kind of actual <laughs> genuine conversation, then go for it. Um, if that's if it's important to you to keep up critical conversations, you should stay in New York. And in some, I think that he was overstating it. Was your U-Haul already packed, and you were like, "Oh, fuck you"? Well, no, no, no. I was still in the de- I was still in the deciding stage. But then the opinion on that was divided, and and I think that he was really largely was he jaded? No, I think he was making a black and white issue. I also think that he didn't have as much experience with L.A. as he'd grown up in the Bay. Even though I was just being critical of Los Angeles for not being critical enough, um, I think that he was overblowing the issue a little bit. I mean, there, there definitely are people out here who will engage critically, conversationally. Um, oh, for sure. E- e- uh, even even in a casual setting. But it is much, much rarer. It's different. Yeah, and it's, it's different. It's just different. Let's go into then why you were in New York. You went to Bard. Yeah. But, but that, where are you originally from? I grew up in Seattle, Washington. Oh, you did? Yeah. Tell me, so what, so how did you, where did you go to school? You went to Bard under undergrad? I went to Bard undergrad, but I went there later in life. I had originally gone to uh, the University of Washington straight out of high school, which is the, the, the big local state school in Seattle. Because they had a decent art program. It was like the most legitimate art program I could have gone to at the time without moving. And I didn't have the money to do that. Right. I didn't really have the resources to. What year was this? This was 1989. Okay. It was good. I mean, at the time, that department was run by sort of late third, fourth generation Abex painters. And uh, in this one sort of op artist, Francis Celentano, who um, had a bit of a career in the Bay Area, actually, before he'd moved up to Seattle to teach. But they were all retiring. Jacob Lawrence had just retired the year before I got there. That was their big star faculty. Right. Um, they were all retiring, and one of my favorite teachers there, basically like one day after class, just asked me like, what the hell I was doing there. Like, What, what did I think I was going to get out of being in Seattle? I mean, he was super, super jaded and had a really frustrating artistic career, like a, a really frustrating artistic life. And he just basically said, like, you know, if, if get, you're, get the fuck out. Yeah, yeah. He's like, if, if you're at all serious about this, you have to move to New York, which I think I think that he was correct about that. He's, I don't think he's probably wrong. You're right. No, not at all. I mean, I think that it's good to be there. Yeah. I, as an American, I think it's it's a little bit required, I think, to spend some time there. 
if only just for your own personal enrich- well, enrichment. Especially as an artist. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, that, I'm sorry. That's, yeah. I took that as a given. But, um, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, so then I, I had, from there, I had transferred to the School of Visual Arts. Uh, you went to SVA? I went to SVA for two semesters, but I was going as a part-time student and trying to work full-time. I mean, even at the University of Washington, I was working full-time to pay my tuition and yeah. stuff. SVA was very expensive. You know, it's a private school. So I, went, school. I did grad school there. Oh, yeah. Wow, wow. I was just paying per class, and I was working. Sort of barely getting by. Barely getting by, you know, like trying to paint in my, my bedroom in Williamsburg, which at the time, I mean, it's probably hard for most people to imagine now, but Williams, was Williamsburg was scary. scary. People, yeah. people, you know, I told them where I lived, like, turned pale just like, my God, and you're still alive. You know, it's like, and it was pretty funny. I mean, this is like, this is still, you know, the hate, the crack heyday back yeah. then. And there were, you know, prostitutes and crack everywhere. And it was, uh, you know, gunshots and uh, I've witnessed a couple murders, all this stuff, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it was, uh, I, I was fine. No one ever bothered me, actually. Literally, I was living off $7 a week after paying tuition and rent. Really? Yeah. I, and, and so so it's like, you know, like something like taking the subway was a major luxury to me. I walked and rode my bike everywhere. Across the bridge. Yeah. Uh, and so finally, I just, I was like, in class one day, I had this horrible painting teacher whose name I can't even remember now. I think he gave me a D. It was a, um, so it was probably like some kind of like beginning or beginning intermediate kind of painting. I didn't paint the things he wanted me to paint, and and he, that really frustrated him, which is fine. Now, now that I've taught, I understand that a little bit more, and he was probably justified in giving me that grade, actually. But I, I, just, I just thought at some point, it's like, my God, what am I doing here? The paint I used was... Uh, I bought the mixed mixed color mis- mixed colors from the local hardware stores because that's what you could afford. Because that's all I could afford, and uh, and then I thought, well, why don't I just quit school and start painting by real paint? And then I dropped out. <laughs> <laughs> I had a I had a painting teacher in undergrad that told me I had a little really good ideas, but no skill, oh. so I should just give it up. Oh. Same type of thing. He was really frustrated. He was in the middle of Nebraska. Um, that's something that I think was used to be far more common. Like I, I remember. What do you mean, the jaded teacher? The jaded teacher, and also that kind, that that type, that style of teaching. You know, it's like I, you know, professors who had gone like who were like a full generation older. I remember them telling me. That's exactly what about, he was yeah. about their horrific art school experiences with their professors coming to their studios and like literally kicking over their easels and telling their shit and they're never going to do anything and they should stop this. Immediately well, my and experience, stop wasting their time, you know, it's like, it's like my experience was the same as yours where I was painting a thing. He didn't, I wasn't doing it in the style he wanted me to do it in. Right. And yeah. I came in and I did it. Like, I think it was like scumbling. It was a painting one lesson. I was doing scumbling and I did, I didn't paint like the trees and stuff. I painted some crazy thing and right, 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 came right, in right. with it and I got like an F on it or a yeah, D. Yeah. Wow. Oh, I really shouldn't say this, but I, I, I feel like, I feel like that's a thing of the past. At least my own bit of teaching experience has been that. How do you do? Okay. So as a teacher, how do you deal in generic terms when you run into something that's frustrating or it's not going in the direction you want it to go with a student? Right. Like, how do you deal with that as far as a teacher? Oh, well, it depends upon the level of severity. I mean, a lot of it, I mean, there's just, there's just, it's just some, there's so many, re- there's, there's so many ways it could go. You try to meet them in common ground or. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that, that's always my go-to is try to understand what it is they're doing and try to help them the best I can with that. And, and that generally gets you over most problems, but you know, there's occasionally just like, you're just not going to get along personally with the person. And there's going to be so much friction between the two of you that, you know, maybe it just will never work out. And that's fine. That's totally fine. That's just being alive as a human with other humans. You around just got to be above that when you actually start putting the grades in. 
yeah, and then you just have to take everything into account. Like, maybe they're not taking my class seriously, but are they taking their own life seriously? How, you know, oh. it's like, and all these things. It, 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 but there is a problem in that I think that, you know, schooling in general, like, is, at least in the arts, you know, it's I haven't taught anything else. So it tends to get a little coddling. Like there is no bad painting? Yeah, well, which, which, and that's that, that can be a real difficult. But, but by the way, there is. There's some really bad paintings. There's there's there's, hor- there's horrible <laughs> painting, but but what, what what does that mean if you're you know 19 or 20 or 18 or 22 or whatever? What does it mean at that level? Because you don't know what you're doing, even if you think you do. You don't know what you're doing. No, so you have not, no idea, so and you're not going to win an argument with somebody like that either. At the same time, I, I do think that the subject should be as taught and graded as seriously as you know if they're taking economics or something like that like if they just don't do the work like well, why would you give them an a I mean, well particularly at one school um who will remain nameless giving anything other than an a was not and this is not where i ta- just taught but it's like it's like a it wasn't acceptable it, it just you no know, it's not okay that's not okay because they're paying the tuition or why because they're paying the tuition but yeah because because these are like you know these are doctors or athletes and they need this class they need this a to keep their you know to keep everything else out. Yeah, and and so you just weren't. It just wasn't really allowed. Which also meant that it got, it got hard to teach if you can't really. Leave, you know, the, the the point really is is that is that in some ways I think that that sort of like harshness of just like you know, like what are you doing? Why are you wasting my time? Why are you wasting your time? And kicking over their painting. I think a lot of that is just frustrated. Is juvenile. Is problematic. But I think there's a certain. It got some results. It got some results, but yeah. it, but but the opposite isn't. I mean, first of all, it, it's a it's a way of building a, a fire under someone a per, t- particular type of personality's ass and can make them pissed off and do something interesting. Well, push them forward. For me, it yeah made me angry and yeah yeah try harder. Um, but it, on the other side too, it's like it's like I think that not having that anymore in the arsenal of teaching is not having any recourse at all to that kind of like just in your face criticism is is a little problematic, but at the same time, I mean, there are a lot of ways to work around it. I have to admit it's really far more enjoyable. I think in my experience, my tiny little limited experience teaching is to really work around your own feelings about what someone else is doing and try to really understand what's going on and how, and and what their struggles are. It's, I mean, that sounds really touchy feely, but, but, but at the same time, it's, (laughs) it is a real growth experience for, it could be enlightening for the teacher. Exactly. For, for me. And, and then I just finally got into the process actually. I started really enjoying it. You did. Yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely. No, teaching is, it's all, takes a lot of energy, but it's fun. It's really fun. And you, like I do learn tons tons about about art about people about being alive are you still teaching right now or not not right now no i mean it's summer but no you're not going to start in the fall either no you're done for the moment for the moment well i mean whatever it's like it's a they ask you back or they don't ask you back exactly (laughs) it's not my choice so you quit sva and then what happened oh yeah so then yeah i mean I, i i had the same job um i was working in a bicycle shop in, oh really? Yeah, yeah, in uh, the Lower East Side, kind of. So you did that for a while. I did that for a while, yeah, and was just like painting. I won't go into details, but I, I, I had a couple really odd experiences, things that I thought were slightly unsavory with how like hierarchies in that world worked. Wait, what world? A sort of strata of the underling New York art world at that time. 
yeah, um, okay. how it worked. And you're talking about our handling and that type of thing, or what? No, no, no. Like, just like getting into shows, trying to get a job as a artist assistant, etc. What et year was this? Oh, this would have been like '91 or something like that. Okay. I don't know. I just felt kind of frustrated. I felt like like all my visions and hopes for what this was going to be like didn't really pan out. Well, this sounds like a real bummer, but I it, I has, ended, a, it has a happy ending. What does? So. <laughs> well, it, yeah, it does. But but uh, I at the time, you know, also I was super young. You know, I was like in nineteen in ninety one. I was twenty years old. Right? Uh, right, and everything's major, right? Yeah, everything seems like it's everything you know, is like the end crisis. of the world. Exactly. And... Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, because it is. Because in your short life, it's the, you know, the, whatever's right. happening it's, with all the, it's it's all, the it's all you've ever known. It's the it's <laughs> the biggest experience that you've had up until that point. Absolutely. I mean, it was it, it was super fun being in New York back then too. Cause there's so much. I mean, there's still so much energy in the city. It, it was like kind of unbelievable. I mean, it was great for painting. I mean, I was making like six paintings a week because it's just like there's just like you couldn't not. You couldn't Do you still have yourself. any of those? Oh um, uh, no! Did you get I don't rid of think them? So I think they're all gone. I mean, they're all painted on paper anyway. It's all I could afford again. I'm always interested to see what the artist keeps out of like. For me, I I do sculpture a lot of the time now, so it's all I don't have room for it. So if it doesn't go somewhere or somebody doesn't take it, then it gets trashed. Yeah. No, I I don't I don't have any work from before 2005 or so. I don't. Is that a personal um, choice based on what you think of the work or just because you don't have it? Part of it was pragmatic. I just, you know, just the practicality of dragging around a bunch of shit because, you know, I tend to move a lot or are used to. I haven't actually been moving that much. And this is a fairly stable period of my life. Uh, I used to move every year and I used to move cities a lot and just get sick of dragging it around. So you end up leaving it in a friend's basement, swearing you're going to come back and get it, knowing that they're going to move well before you do that. And it's probably just going to end up in a thrift store thrown out somewhere, um, <laughs> which is totally fine. I mean, it's the, the, the thing was, is it's, you know, it's, it's, it's all work that I was making at the time towards a certain goal. And none of it was really. Well, you hadn't reached a point where you're, it wasn't the work that it is now. You hadn't like figured out where you needed to be probably in the process. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Um, but I think that's always true and will always remain to be true. Hopefully of past works, you mean of past works and, and present works to become past works. Yeah. No, none of that work was that good. I mean, that, that's, that's really the, because I, I was still very much, you were young. Well, I was young, but also I, my ambitions were so different and it's also, I mean, part of it is just being, you know, your, your post crash, just post crash, like 91, 92, whatever. This is like, it's like the art market had fallen apart. Um, people didn't have any expectations at all for making Right before making it builds big, back up again. Too. Right, right before it builds back up again. I had no expectations for making money off of it. For me, it was literally just an intellectual and spiritual pursuit. I had likened and was totally happy with likening becoming an artist to becoming some kind of priest or an ascetic. You know, like or I, you were never going to make money. You were always going to be money. in poverty. Was, and yeah, and I mean that that was totally the expectation. I mean, like, and that was the conception in popular culture too. Did you have a significant other at that time? I did not. That yeah. would probably be change that perspective as well too. Probably yeah. right because the having a partner and the life goals of two people are much different than some some dude living in an apartment like on oh yeah because you're just you're just flip, like yeah. flapping in the breeze yeah like it's who just, gives you know, a shit like, yeah you're just you know whatever whatever wherever the wind blows you know it's number two comes along and they're like right. no i don't think so john <laughs> this ain't gonna cut it <laughs> well that's actually super interesting because not only their perceptions of what you're doing but also your perceptions of what they're doing and this whole process where you're both encouraging each other to be the people that 
not only they want to be, but you want them to be. Well, if you're, and it's this really reciprocal process. Where if you're in the right partnership, yes, you're pushing each other forward. Absolutely. So uh, your partner, <clears throat> Samara Golden, how long have you guys been together then? It'll be 11 years in November. Okay, so yeah. is that? I assume that's what you're sort of talking about when you're talking about two people pushing each other. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And that can be a really wonderful thing. I mean, just this whole, you know, having that, not only that, um, the pressure to become this person that you have advertised being, but also the encouragement to become that person is a really support. Big deal. Yeah, the support. It's a really big, but also the pressure. I mean, it's like, it's like, you know, you said you are something, you said you're going to be something you better, you, you better deliver. On but it's that. on you. It's all on you too. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time it's not with your partner. Who's like looking at you and judging. It's on you to live up the expectations that you set for yourself because you're with that person. Well, and you wanted to be with that person because, because you could be this thing that you wanted to be for them. So now you better show up. Well, you better show up for both of your souls, yeah, you know, yeah. and it's, and, and it's, but so, and it's, so it's interesting. It's a really interesting process of, of like push and pull, of like helping each other, one encouraging the other, one criticizing the other, one like pushing the other, one like, you know, coddling the other one. When they, when they need, when they need a good, you know, when they need some real support. Yeah. When they need a shoulder, you know, so, so that is really important. And like all the freewheeling bachelor years. Yeah, I mean, I just, it was literally blowing in the breeze. But that, but that was fun, too. How long did that last? So you were there oh working God. at the bicycle shop? A long time. Way too long. Well, and then I, then I moved, <laughs> then I moved, then I moved down to, it's, it's almost embarrassing if I put a number to it. Um, then I had moved back to Seattle for a little bit. and um, For what reason? You were just like sick of New York? Yeah, well, like I was, like I was getting it. I mean, I, I'd had some really, some unsavory interactions it sort of disheartened me. I mean, again, I was just young, impressionable, and I was so sort of got fed up with how it seemed like the whole like peer network was working at that time in that place. Well, I had to I'll be honest. That's why I left New York too. Yeah, and 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 Seattle was. I mean, I grew up there. Lots of friends there, and it was cheap. It was still cheap back then. Yeah. Um. And so you know, I had this like giant storefront that I rented for almost nothing. And by the way, I'm not down on New York at all. I love New York. I love New York too. I think it's just a personal thing at that point in my life where I needed to like move because I was down on sort of myself a little bit too. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, at that point I really became a little overly jaded with everything in life. I mean, it's kind of a You're funny a thing bitter. to talk about. I, I became a bit bitter, but, but also it started this whole where, um, what were you doing when you went back? I, I was working at other bike shops actually. I was still painting at the time. I mean, that was still the focus of my life. And it was, you, that was still being an artist was the major focus of your life. It was. This whole train of thought had kind of derailed me. It it was, it was the ascetic streak in me that, (laughs) that made me just like, you know, there, there was also just having this like real, like this real socialist streak too, where I just, I, uh, being an artist struck me as highly elitist and my experiences in New York just prove that to me in a certain, in a certain like really right. limited, like young person yeah. without any experience way. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I just kind of, at that point I just decided I wanted to become a working guy and just, so you rejected it. I just wanted, yeah, I just, like, I just, I didn't want anything to do with it anymore at, at a certain point, like a couple of years after I'd gotten back. And so I tried this for a few months, just like being a working guy and drinking in bars. How'd that like, go for you? Tor- terrible. It was horrible. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it just, you know, I, I, it was such a lie in some ways to myself. I, even though, even though like, I feel that in some ways my heart was in the right place. Like I, I wanted to be able to, you know, honor 
just life in its barest essence. Well, it's like blue collar working. It's like yeah. the, I grew up like that. It's it feels very natural. I I always feel an affinity to go back to that a little bit. Yeah, it feels more honest. Well, and it's and it and it carried through. I mean, because I'm I'm a real studio guy. Like I and it, I only feel good when I'm working. You know, when I'm working hands on, hands on stuff. Yeah, you I mean, can see that in your work, by the way, too. Right. I mean, it's yeah. It's I mean, I love making things with my hands. I love using tools. I love you know. I, I love the whole thing, and I love just the process of just physically that did not moving my body. That didn't strike me today or before today until I was looking through all the images of your work preparing for you to come tonight, seeing the, the movement and sort of how you work with objects as well as the paintings and everything. I can totally tell it's a very hands-on experience and it's like you're in, in that process. No, absolutely. It's, it's a, it's a, um, it's a process, you know, it's, it's a, it's a type of thought that can only happen in that, particular situation it's like it's a type of thought that happens with your whole body and that that sounds a little fruity but like when you're working with materials there's a whole process that involves you the material your movement your space in the earth like how all these things are combining together how they're all influencing each other it's a process it's akin very much akin to a type of thought and analysis and all this process all this problem solving that's involved it's very satisfying to me in this weird way because it's because it's constantly frustrating. Maybe that's why it's satisfying because it's so frustrating. It's good to be challenged. Absolutely, and and it stays like and working in the material world for me has really become this essential way of staying challenged, staying like moving forward constantly, constantly finding new hurdles to overcome because those hurdles are the beauty of being alive in some senses. Yeah. But uh, again, that sounds so fruity. But it it it's. You know, it, it's why I make objects because it, it, it's a type of thought. It's a process that that can't be done in writing or can't be done in you know in in any other form because it's such a particular. Just talking about, I'm not dividing the world between verbs and objects. It, it's it's you make painting specifically has its own very specific, you know, courses of action that end up with very specific results. And I mean, yes, a lot of that is is contextual. A lot of that is actually like it's engaging in histories and etc but a lot but really genuinely a lot of it is just you have to deal with the color red and what is the color red yeah. and how does that and there is palette choices or palette choices but it's like but it's like that that like, you know that is something that cannot be explained in any meaningful way any other way we were we were talking briefly before we started recording and one of the things that interested me about the work is that you make these you make these choices about some of the pieces that you're doing on the wall where they're actually, they're objects in a way. You're, you're painting on, uh, you're changing the medium. You're painting on wood. The objects that are on the wall actually activate a space that's larger than what a painting would be because it's almost like a sculpture on a wall. And you had done sculptures as well too. So like traditionally yeah. I'd known you as a painter. Also, well, I should say this and I forgot to mention it previously. Whenever I have brought up your name to basically anybody in LA and brought up your paintings without fail every single one of them has said that they're a fan of the work <laughs> we, you were talking about being critical and everything mm-hmm. like it was behind closed doors thing when people are really pretty honest about it and every single person is a fan of the painting they're beautiful that being said i was surprised to see a lot of the sculptures in the work that i'd seen yeah well uh, the, the painting is always it's it's a it's a delicate relationship the painting is always the, and, and, and this is in no way meaning to make any kind of hierarchies, but the painting is always 
the subject. Even though I take the sculptural aspects very, very seriously, they're almost always, and, and how to say this without taking away any power from, from the actual like sculptural elements, like they are generally modifiers to the reading of the painting. But how, you, how you navigate a space to get around to the painting? Or? I navigate a space to get around to the painting, but also how do you conceive of the painting as an object? I mean, I mean a lot of it came out of... Uh, it's sort of creating a composition within a room and not just within uh, a singular wall space. I think about it more in terms of how to create a composition in a culture. It really started pretty early. I actually started while I was at SVA wanting to cut apart my paintings because they're all painted on paper anyway and hang them in space so that... They would move out into the room and have the sculptural presence. And a lot of this was, it was kind of reaction to the degraded social standing of painting or something at the time, but also like a way of just like forcing someone to like, to conceive of this object, this painting, you know, as something that wasn't quite understood. This like, it's like something that you had, you'd have to contend with in another way. And then that, that sort of over years and years got, went through many different permutations and do you set up a narrative then within the work where these things, these objects and things, if you're talking culturally and not mm -hmm. just specifically to that moment, are you setting up a narrative for that, that staging of the work in, in the room? Complicated question. You can say this like personally, you yourself have one that you've sort of set up the parameters for, but do, is, is the intention to set up some type of narrative or some type of... The relationships between the objects are often influenced by narratives, narratives that run through my head a lot as I'm working. That's what, one, one of the joys of being a painter is you spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours by yourself. You know, you just end up thinking about a lot of things. But it's, uh, you know, because you're, you're spending hours and hours labor, like, you know, if I'm painting still lifes or something like that. Then it takes forever. It's, it takes forever, and it's just hours where you're, you're painting. And, and especially, you know, that type of painting, um, you kind of know what you need to do, and your mind is very free. Though the relationships between the objects are often guided by some kind of narrative, whatever that narrative may be, and the narrative changes a lot. What the intended effect is always to create a sort of field of questions, a field of questioning. The, the whole point of having these objects that call each other into question is to open up these questions for the viewer. I don't actually have the answers. I don't want the answers. I don't think I can provide the answers. Not that there aren't any specific answers, but it just, it's, it's more important to me right now to start the line of questioning than it is to give answers. It's like, it, I feel like we're not asking the right questions yet right now. There needs to be more questioning, more careful questioning. Culturally or? Culturally, yes, absolutely. Not just art world and specifically. Our, and our well, aesthetically, aesthetically and art, and, and in the way that we conceive of art and what art does and how art can function. I, I want it to pierce many strata. So it can speak about the larger culture in general. Like, what do we do? Like, what, what does it mean to be a human? Why do we make art? Why don't we just you know, buy cars and groceries. It's like, it's like, why, why do we care about something like a painting? The, yes, the larger questions like that. Uh, what, what, what does it, what function does it, does, does banking painting even have when I could just have, you know, an online presence somewhere or something like, uh, but it's, but it's also just specifically like what does one type of painting and one set of histories actually influence? Like how, how does one set of histories actually influence another? What, what, what do they actually have to say about each other? What does a sculpture in the middle of the room how does that just physically affect and aesthetically affect the reception of this thing that's on the wall? How do they influence each other? They can be highly, highly specific and very, very generalized. And in some ways, that's the exact 
point I want to hit. That's the, that, that's the exact note I want to hit with the show when it all comes together as a show. So let's talk about, and I, I have issues with this. So this is that's a really vague. Sorry. It's vague, but I think it gives insight into when you go in and you actually look at the work, you get, you get more of a sense of where you're coming from on it. It, it is enlightening. That is a fine answer <laughs> because it's one of the issues I have art fairs, right? So mm-hmm. you were just in independent Brussels with uh, Gavin Brown. So how do you deal with setting up that situation in a fair space? Because it's different than setting up a show. Yeah. Well, that was interesting. Because things are going to be read wholly different. Yeah. Yes and no. Yes and no. And, and it's interesting doing a solo booth because the expectations are slightly different. This is, this is a really tricky subject. In what way? Ultimately, there should be no difference. Absolutely, as an artist, one should not conceive of those two things differently at, at, at the, all. At the bare minimum, there's a difference in size and scale. Yeah, it was because a big room, and it was a lot of work to get done in a couple months. But Some artists create knowing there's a specific audience for the work. So I'm going to create a situation in my studio that works well for my studio when I put everything together and build whatever I need to do for this space. Building for a gallery space in New York is wholly different than building for uh, an art fair space in Brussels. Knowing the space, the scale, and the crowd that's going to walk through there, I don't think it's un- unjustified to consider those things when you're, when you're making the work for that, that thing. And it is not a commercial quantifier. It's just specifically the, the audience that's going to be walking through the space and understanding the work. And how you have to sort of adjust to to fit that audience? Yeah. Well, I, I guess I guess my concern is that if one takes the context too much into consideration, and that that the context will overrun you. It'll I mean, dilute I like the work. It'll dilute the work. I mean, it's like it's like if you make artwork for a fair, you're going to make something that's highly dishonest. You know, it's well, like it's like I mean, yes, yes, you do want to, you do want to. I don't disagree with you, but. I don't think it's about making work for the fair. I think it's about making work for the space. Right. It was a beautiful space, though, actually. But that's what I mean. I, um, it's, a, it's a spatial thing. It's like yeah. a contextual, it's spatially considerate about the volume of people. And I'm not talking who's going to come in and purchase. Yeah, well, no, it's, but, but it is interesting. I mean, ultimately, I did, the booth was structured much different than it would be for a gallery show. And it was... In what ways? In that the... The work was much more cohesive and the statements were much more generalized. You so, think it was a- so having said what I just said, I did <laughs> definitely make, I did definitely make different choices. I mean, thinking about, I mean, it's, but I still think this is dangerous and I still think I went a little bit too far with it in, in some ways. I so in retrospect, you wish you would have pulled back on it a little bit. Or push forward a little more. So whatever happened to be. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's like, because in some point, like, it, you know, I, I feel like I was making assumptions about who was going to see it under what context and what was actually possible to achieve under those well, conditions. Well, I guess this is exactly my point. Whether being good or bad, and I think it is probably bad, we do make those choices when we go in and look at those things and start making work for those spaces and try to figure out what we need to be doing for that. And I don't, I don't think it's necessarily, I don't think it's an intentional thing. I don't think you went in there thinking to yourself that you're going to make that work. I did the exact same thing in Paris at FIAC where I walk back out of it and I'm like, ah, this pieces really shouldn't have been that way. Like I should have set it up and I should, I did bronzes. I should have like done a patina on them and made them all black <laughs> and said, fuck it. Instead of making them all shiny. You know what I mean? It's that type of thing. But I, it took me a while to step back from it. It was like, oh, like it was, it just clicked easier for me. I think it's easier to do a show than it is to do a fair booth. 
It is. I mean, the the expectations and the the pressure is a little bit different. I mean, it, but I, I I I do feel, even though I made specific choices, I do feel that that probably those 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 shouldn't be concerns. And like Samara, very definitely feels. I mean, like she was very she de- very definitely feels that way that, about her own work. Or about her yours? own work, or you know, like everything. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you should really. She's just echoing something that I told her a long time ago. Uh, it's just, it's just, it's just, which is great. It's great. You know, it's like one of the beauties of being in a relationship. She called you out. She called me out. Uh, I just, I just like you know, it's like it's like any opportunity you have to show, you have to put your best foot forward, no matter what you think. Well, about that's absolutely that, true, right? What what you assume that opportunity is going to be. However, though, I put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into that work. It looked um, beautiful. But it, but it was just, it was just, it was, it was. I probably, if it was a show, if it was a gallery show, it probably would have been a bit less streamlined. Also, say. to know, but, but it was a good exercise. I think it was a healthy exercise. To, better to than that. a good exercise. It was noted as one of the top like five booths at Independent Brussels by the New York Times. Oh, that was nice. I didn't even know that. You didn't? No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just saw that. Oh, <laughs> it is interesting though, because it did set up this whole set of thoughts of just like what what it, this is a fair booth should i treat this differently how would i treat this differently what is what is appropriate work to send and then and then you also you know it's like right, 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 right you don't have it you do not have a press release sitting there with that thing to hand out to people to set your parameters of what the show is i mean some people don't do that anyway but it, it is a wholly different animal but i mean in some ways the expectations are, are really different i mean like you know your gallery show is the catwalk fashion launch the, the art fair, the expectation in general is more that these are the products you're actually sending to well, market. Well, they're, they're, in they're an extension of the practice. Yeah. You have set up the parameters for like what you were making in the actual show. And then you are extending that practice throughout. Like it doesn't just last one show. You get to make more works out of that same avenue. Right. And it's. Which it, is nice too, by the way, because you get to work is, through problems. Oh, no, absolutely. And it, it allows you, it, it gives you a very, very. Uh, a good context to work through unfinished ideas well, because ideally when you're doing your, your gallery show, you're working with a lot of new ideas. Well, the right? sure. Okay. You're so, bumbling through a lot of things so that, that could be, you can, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. Um, I say that a lot on this show. <laughs> Were the wooden shirts with the paintings in the show in New York, mm-hmm. the Gavin Brown show. Yeah. Okay. So then the Gavin Brown booth in Brussels was an extension of that where you did wooden, was it fruit? Yeah, it was a, a pineapple, banana, uh, a hand mirror, and two telephones. I like the shirts quite a bit. I really like the bananas and the the way that you worked those images and the scale and the size of the actual pieces changed out of the New York show. And you could see the furthering of that thought process on from where you were at in the New York show. It was an opportunity to sort of elongate that conversation so that I, it was it was a way for me to sort of augment what happened at the show in New York where I feel like too many people had a sort of like, aha, I got it moment with the, yep. with the sweaters. Yep, 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 yep. Because the, 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 oh, there were the, sweaters. the fit between the sweater and the, and the painting was a little too close. Or even if you saw them as shirts or sweatshirts or T-shirts, or uh, a lot of people had a different interpretation. Also, that's all fine. Uh, I think um, the first 20 times we met, you were wearing the same sweater. Could be. Yeah, <laughs> could be. So I can totally see, oh, yes, sweaters. That makes sense now. Yeah, yeah. I tend to, you know, have security blankets like that. It allowed me to sort of like pull that conversation like taffy a little bit, like actually pull it in different directions so that it isn't just about this very tight fit between, 
even though even though that was the thrust of the of the sweaters, it was like is like the the tight fit between aesthetics, what we consider aesthetics, and their and its commercial uses, well, and it's and it's one of the just looking at the images, it's one of the reasons they work too, yeah, because the arms were folded in different directions, and mm-hmm. you could read them as sort of a, it was almost like a storyboard. Do you know what I mean? Like oh, one to the next, and you could see how this sort of read in repetition. You could follow it through a process, basically, instead of having one like individual stamp of a moment, and it read really nicely. Yeah, well, I guess the the installation um, really reinforced that kind of reading because they were all in a row. Did you um, not like that? No, it was it was it was the best way they worked in the space. I mean, I think ideally. But do you not like how that's interpreted? No, no, I, no. It, it in some ways. I mean, wait, wait which part of it? Like the the that it reads as narrative? sort of like yeah, like it reads as a one to the two to the three. Like you can see them sort of moving and. Having no, a flow? Oh, no, I don't mind that at all. I, it, that's not something I, I, that's not how I had ever conceived of it because in my experience of it is they're all modeled off after different actual sweaters. And so I Separate saw them all as being different sweaters. Oh, so, oh interesting. Uh, they're all roughly the same size. Yeah, that's, maybe that's why it was. And they're made out of the same wood part of it. But in my mind, they were always very different sweaters. <laughs> okay, okay. We've totally gone down the rabbit hole. You were in Seattle. Mm-hmm. How the fuck did you get back to New York for Bard? Yeah, right. Okay, so... You were Jade... Hang on, a man. young, disillusioned Lit- man. Disillusioned, right. okay, Yeah, and, and I, 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 I tried to become, you know, the, the proletariat worker. It lasted and about six months. It lasted about six months, maybe less. So what I did is I bought a drum kit. And Are you serious? Absolutely. Yeah. You, like, went through all phases of adolescence. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Someone's got to do it. No, I bought a drum kit and started playing music. I continued painting and still had a studio and all that. But you were a musician. I, I, I became more of a musician than a painter for a while. So you were in bands or what? I started out playing in um, like arty noise bands in the early 90s. I- improvised yeah. noise music. And it was super fun, communal living, the whole thing, you know, band houses and all the joys and horrors that go along with it. Horrors. They go along with it. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm glad you left. Anyway, um... It was, at a certain point, you know, musicians are difficult to deal with. So are actors. So are actors, so are artists, whatever. I yeah. mean, but, but having, to, having to make, you know, your, your aesthetic object with this team. Oh, instead maybe, of individually. Instead of individually, maybe just was proving to not be so much for me. Right. Too many arguments with the prima donna bass player over whether or not he's going to sing or whatever. You know, it's Yeah, like, the direction it's like of like a simple storming, thing. Storming out of practice. You know, Something that should be so easy. And it also got a little bit boring because, like, you know, transitioning to, like, actually trying to play in a pop band as a drummer is dull. You know, because everyone wants you to be a drum machine. And, like, why don't you just get a drum machine then? You know, it's like... Um, With the same beat over yeah, yeah, and yeah. over? For yeah. every song. So then I just... Do you uh, still play or not? No, I haven't played it. I mean, it's hard to have... You have to have a place to play drums. Yeah, yeah. It, I, I, just, I just realized I was never going to be anything other than mediocre. It was fun, but my aspirations were much larger than what I was ever going to be able to realize, I think. And also I just kind of got frustrated with dealing with the drama. So at that point I I moved to Chicago and then didn't, couldn't handle the weather actually. And that place is fucking cold. The cold actually didn't bother me. It was Was actually wind or what was it? No, it was spring and fall. Really? What? What about it? I was just like hot and cold and hot. And it'd be like 40 <laughs> and snowing and 80 and balmy and 40 and snowing. It was like every two days. It like, changes drastically. It's like, am I going to freeze to death or am I going to die of heat stroke? I don't know which. You know, just let me know. You know? So how long were you there? Um, a year. And then I was like, you know, I can't take this. I, I tried every season. And I was just like, no, I can't take this. So you ended up back in New York. Well, no, it, no, it's it's a really 
screwy story. So, and then I, I, then I, I ended up in Arizona. I was in Tucson. And it was there, again, still trying to be a drummer, still trying to be a musician. It was there, like, playing with some old friends of mine who we'd had sort of, like, very similar bands that played in very similar shows, et cetera, et cetera, and playing music with them and just dealing with their problems. And they're all wonderful people, but just realizing, like, you know what I really need to do? I don't do. want to do this. I don't want to do this. I mean, I'm still friends with them and everything, but I just was painting in the communal living room one day and just thought, you know what, this is... This is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. And yeah. and I just thought I, I, I have to heal all my, you know, adolescent wounds over what had happened in New York and, and, and just move past this. And so what I, what I actually did was this very weird thing. Instead of moving to New York, I decided to move back to Seattle again, uh, again, partly because Seattle is a small town, but it prides itself on being cosmopolitan. It prides itself on having culture. Yeah. And so it was a small pond. And it was very easy to become. It's big. accessible. It's, it's comfortable. It's accessible. It's comfortable. I mean, I hate Seattle actually. But no, you can no get back into the groove of like painting and everything as well too. And it was still, it was still affordable at the time too. Less so now. I mean, the whole United States is. Like, but it also, it's like it's like I could get in some important practice, for lack of a better word. I could assert myself in this social community. In, yeah, in, in this art community and. Um, actually kind of get somewhere in a short period of time yeah. as a way of sort of overcoming a lot of fears that I had about it. Yeah, that and came out of New York. That came out of New York, of yeah. being New York, of being a little unprepared for it, actually, yeah. and not having support network. But, you know, a couple of years of that, and I was just like, yeah, this is not going to go anywhere. Then you applied the barn? No, then I just, then I actually <laughs> moved to Los Angeles. Holy shit, dude. And I put all my stuff in a car, and I drove down. And I was crashing at a friend's house, looking around for apartments, and just couldn't find anything. I just couldn't find an apartment. I just I was having this weird bad luck right when I was looking. I applied for a bazillion apartments and was looking for jobs, and nothing was panning out. And then I was talking to a friend in New York on the phone, and he just said, like, you know, I have a room in my apartment is coming open next week. Like, oh, you should come you to like, New York. I'll take it. Well, he, and he was like, ha, 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 ha. Why don't you just move here? Ha, ha, ha. And then I hung up like laughing, ha ha. Yeah, and got right. in the car. And then, and then, <laughs> no, I literally like, I was walking down the boardwalk in Venice, looking at the ocean. And I just thought, what? Why not? Why don't I just take that seriously? Like, obviously this is like an opportunity. I'm just going to pick it up. So I just called him right back and said like, seriously, hang on to that room for me. Cause I'm going to be there. I'm coming. I'm be there in five days. Just drove across the country, made a couple stops visiting some friends and then showed up on Halloween night in 2003. And partied. So then from there, then I started like working in galleries and doing art handling and all these things I should have done years and years and years and years before. Bard was really never on my radar. It's a wonderful school, but it was never really on my radar until one day I was, work I was working at Loring Augustine and they had this photography show, sort of mixed bag photography show. It didn't really have a theme. The theme was really just... Uh, can I say this on the radio? The theme was, was it was someone's collection. They were trying to sell it. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but, but it had some wonderful photographs in it actually. And, uh, some really great work. They had a very good collection. One of the artworks that happened to be hanging, I was the, I was the front desk stooge. One of the works ha happened to be this Stephen Shore. I knew you were going to say that. Um, yeah. self-portrait, uh, a, a, which he made very, very few of ever. Someone had told him, a friend of his had told him that they had this early self-portrait of his from like whenever it was 68 or 72 or something like that. And he, he said he hadn't looked at any of them. He hadn't seen any of them so he came since, since 
he took him basically. Yeah. So we came to the gallery and it was right by the desk and we just started talking because he's a nice guy. He is a lovely man. Oh no, he's, he's wonderful. But his whole shtick is that school is a waste of time because he never went to college. Right. Like he didn't have to. Yeah, yeah. And, and the way the art world worked was so different back then. I mean, this is like still roughly in the era when, you know, Betty Parsons had open portfolio day on Tuesdays. You know, it's like, yeah. it's like, that's crazy. Right. Just thinking about that's crazy. Because we started talking, like, what are you doing here? Because, like, we were having a nice conversation. And basically, it's just like, what the, What are you doing here? Like, what What do you What do you think you're going to get out of this job here? Like, what are you, kind of a little bit, a little bit, not, but in a nice way. I was like, well, I don't know. I'm thinking about going back to school. And he's like, that's a waste of time and money. Don't do it. And then we started talking about Bard. And even though he was super anti-school, I could tell that he loved Bard. Yeah. I could tell that he really loved He's it. been there a while. He's been there a long time. And he's kind of entrenched there, actually. The way that he spoke about Bard made me understand that it actually would be an interesting place to be. So it was something you should consider. Yeah. And so I had applied there and got in as a transfer student because I had a couple years of undergrad. And well, it's nice too. You were a little bit older were. when you went as well. <laughs> yeah, I was like so 35 had, when I went back. So it was kind of ridiculous. I was 35. So you I had back. like complete perspective on everything. Yeah. Which was great too because uh, I wasn't, when I was 19 or 20, I wasn't ready to go... No. To college necessarily. I mean, not that I didn't get anything out of it. Not that I wasn't an okay student. I was an okay student. It all seemed like a game to me. It all seemed like a game to me when I was like in my teens and early twenties. Yeah. You know, when I, by the time I was thirty-five, I took it all very seriously. I mean, it was like, you know, was, at that point, like in my life, you know, knowledge was nourishment. I just couldn't soak up enough, and so it was really a wonderful. Did, where did you meet Samara? On a sidewalk, on Metropolitan and Grand. Before Grand, Bard Grand or after. No, before Bart. Oh my God, just before I went. Yeah. yeah, just before I went. Yeah, and she was brave enough to move upstate with me. <laughs> did she really? When yeah, you were going to school? Uh huh. Yeah. And then she was there for a year, and then she started at Columbia. It's amazing. Yeah. You get done with Bard. You come directly to LA. When do you go to grad school? There was a year. There was a year where I worked uh, for Peter Halley actually in New York. And what made you think like being adverse to sort of school and going back to Bard even to like get back into there and go in at a later age? Why did you think that you wanted to do grad school so soon after you did undergrad? Because of that nourishment thing of like getting that information? Did you want to be back in the West Coast? No, that wasn't. Well, no, actually, that's not true. We talked about Samar and I both had talked about for a long time moving to Los Angeles before, but especially after the crash, New York got to be a little bit of a bummer. To be in... Yeah, what year was that for you? I was 07 when I graduated from SVA. Uh -huh. It was a total bummer. Yeah, well, it, 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 was, it, it had already become <laughs> such a... It become such a shopping mall. You... And, and when it was a shopping mall without money, it's... I mean... All, you were at a bar in 08. I was out of Barden in 08. Exactly. You were at a bar in 08, and you yeah. did USC here in LA in, in 2011. You Two, graduated in 2011. 2011, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a year that Samara was finishing up. Columbia. Columbia, and getting our master's there. And then I was working for Peter Halley. So part of it, part of wanting to go straight back into school, it was, it was twofold. One is a better reason than the other, but I having a taste of not being in the work a day world. I mean, you know, just as a person who it's amazing, right? Working full time from like age, whatever, 18 on, I, I just had, and then being immersed in academia, not having to have a job and whatever. The best thing graduate finish. school ever did for me was give me the two years of undivided retention that I could yeah. focus on my own work. Right. I, I, I would pay that money again, that very high rate for SVA. <laughs> to, like so many people have issue with it. And I take no issue with that amount of money because 
when else would I have had the time to take two years and just focus and get the attention that I needed? The work that I was making wasn't any good, but like it took me a while afterwards to sort of figure that out. But without that two years, I would have been fucked. I, I agree with you in spirit. However, I mean, the well, cost, the cost of school is astronomical and ridiculous. Well, it, it's absurd. I mean, I mean, I'm, I, again, I won't out this person, but I happened to in one of my jobs was going through personal materials. It was part of my job going through personal materials for this person I worked for. And I happened to find their school bills from the early seventies. And I mean, you know, it's like the bill for the semester was $700 before, okay, before so. their, their scholarship. And this was at a very fancy private school they were going to. Um, I mean, you're talking about even adjusting for the most insane inflation. You're talking about $4,000. I'm, I'm not going to be a complete dick. The reason yeah. that I did not give a shit completely mm-hmm. is when I was in Washington, D.C., I bought a house cheap. Mm-hmm. I sold it when the market hit high oh, wow. before everything fell apart. Right. And I made a bunch of money. And then I blew all of the money in New York City living in Chelsea for two years and going to school. Right, 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 right. <laughs> everything gone. It's a good way to blow it, though. You know what? I do not regret spending mm-hmm. any of that money that I had on the schooling right. and living there and go, being in New York. Yeah. Well, for me, I, I was I took the more traditional route and just took out loans, which you know will probably. I took out some loans. Probably chase me for the rest of my life. But but it's <laughs> but it's it's um, I mean it, it it the cost of education is absurd. It's counter. There, there, it's still, counterproductive. I'm still waiting for an actual intelligent conversation about the cost of school in the public sphere because. You know, the, when, when it was a big issue, when the school loans became a big issue, whatever it was, you know, eight years ago or something, the, the, the conversation was always revolving around stupid students or greedy professors. I'm just like, what the hell it are makes you no talking sense. It's about? ridiculous, yeah. I mean, it, 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 how, it's not going in their pockets. And, and no mention about like Reagan and defunding higher education or anything yeah. like that. I mean, like there was no talk about that. I mean, it was all just about how students and professors were to blame. It's just like, oh, my God, this is like this is like watching like a 50s B movie where they're making fun of beatniks or something like that. Yeah. It's like it's like they're just vilifying like intellectuals. It's ridiculous. Anyway, I mean, we talked about moving to Los Angeles because New York had been it just it was getting more and more expensive despite the crash. You know, rent was going up, not down. You know, when we left, when we left our apartment, we had an apartment in Harlem. It was very close to the Columbia Studios. It was $1,800, which is about the cheapest rent you could find in New York at the time. Still expensive. Still expensive. And, but then when we left, they, they I think they rented for like 2400 or something like That's that. That's insane. Like rent was, and this was in 2008. This is like in the height of the crash, 2009. Like Mine the crash. was. And so all, and when I would want to talk about money, my least favorite subject of all time, well, no, I was just talking about money, but anyway, but the, but the, uh, <laughs> but it's, 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 but it, it, it just seemed like it was time for a change. Los Angeles had always had this, like this weird magic in my mind because my brother was a thespian. He and all of his thespian friends, you know, they were all like off Broadway actors, whole funny relationship with Los Angeles that, you know, like, and at that time you'd, you see it, you'd see it in like movies and TV shows too, where, you know, Los Angeles was always knocked like everywhere, like Los Angeles vilified. It was like, yeah, it was, it always was a like, stepchild. it was a, a layer lower than hell, you know? And like, and it was you know, like, you know, like it was hell and then Pittsburgh and then Los Angeles, you know, whatever. And it was like, you know, so, so it's like, it's like, no knock on Pittsburgh. Sorry. That's just, that, that's, that's a WC Fields reference. You fucker. Anyway. Um, but it was, but it was, uh, so, so it had always like held this fascination for me. It was like, Oh my God, if it's that bad, I, I should go there someday. Right. And then visiting one day, I was just like, this place is so weird. You know, gotta, it's really weird, right? Yeah. It's so, it's super weird. Uh, so then, and also, and also at the time USC had a huge buzz and you know, like, it was a great school. 
It was a great school. Yeah, it was, it was a fantastic a, school. And but it but it was funny because it was you know it's like uh, is that when they were paying all the tuition too? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was yeah. sort of free. Sort of free. I still took out loans to live on, but but, but yeah. reasonable compared oh, to the compared other. to the alternative. Mine absolutely. was like thirty grand a year or something. Thirty five, yeah, no, forty it was, grand a year. It was, it, I know it was it was a an amazing opportunity, an amazing experience. But it was also interesting because you know amongst you know when I asked people, there was a lot of hype. When, when it, there was there was a lot of hype. I mean, like anything like that had it. But it was of, because it was good. It was justified. Yeah. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's but it was it was interesting because you know when I asked people in New York, you know, you know w- w- what were the good schools? Almost everyone mentioned USC and in, in this excited sense. Like, oh really? I remember asking Amy Silman about it, and she was like, "Oh my God, USC is so cool! Like you should go there." It was it was interesting, and I was like, "Wow, this place." Well, anyway, I mean, I it, I'd heard about it, but I'd never really really thought. I thought more like UCLA or something like that if I was right. going to go to school. Right. But um, so then then I applied, then I applied, and I'd I'd gotten in, decided to move. Out and it was a little uncomfortable for Samara actually because she was just leaving. She was just leaving school. Well, she had connections. She had like sort of a thing going on. But then there was a there was a small exodus, and so not only. But also that was at the end. That was when everything was going to shit in New York with galleries and everything else. That was when everything was falling apart. The emerging. So the year before me, I think two thousand six. That's when people were still being picked up. Two thousand seven when I graduated. I think 2005 was a real big one. Then 2006 was where it was a little bit. And then 07 when I graduated, nobody got a gallery. They were doing the whole thing where they were going into the grad schools and like pulling people out of Columbia, SVA and Hunter. Mm-hmm. And it was like a given. Yeah. If you were going to school there, at least five of you would get a gallery space and nobody out of New York got galleries. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, I mean, but it's also, you know, like all these things that seem like they were like these enormous you know, soon to be mega institution, you know, like John Connolly presents, you know, like, yeah, everything just sort of blew up. It, by like, by the way, it, nobody deserved to have a gallery in <laughs> my class. either. You know what I mean? Nobody was ready. Nobody. I wasn't ready. Well, and, and that's, that's a funny, that's a funny, that's a funny thing about grad school too. And the expectations and it's, I have very maybe peculiar or maybe understandable viewpoints on grad schools and expectations for grad schools. I think it's sad when someone, wants to go to grad school as a finishing school, thinking that that's going to be their introduction. They're going to jump out of it, they're gonna, like, it like, and yeah. know what they're doing. Well, they're going to go in knowing what they're doing, and they can come out doing the same thing, only it's gonna be way more famous and get a lot of money or something like that. And it's it's sad because it, it is such a wonderful, like, crockpot. It's a... Well, it's 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 amazing if you go into it thinking that you're going to get something out of it that's going to melt you down. If you're going to actually use... Yes, that's a good way yeah, to phrase if, it. If you're going to use that intense... The intense social situation. To sort amount, of figure, figure the, yourself out. Yeah, to figure yourself out and to have people like test you, to have people prod your ideas, have people like augment them, destroy them, to like, you know, like, all these things, like all these things that are like the wonderful side of Also, that. dude, that's you going into grad school at 37. Yeah, sure. Right? Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Like there's no fucking way that it like, to, I went in at 28 and I was older for 28 too. Like there's it, like, you don't have reasonable expectations of what you're supposed to get out of it at, at a younger age. I shouldn't generalize, but for the most part, I feel like that's reasonably true. Yeah, maybe. I mean, also, I'd, I'd been tempered by years and years and years of plugging along. Being a bicycle mechanic. Being a bicycle mechanic, yeah. <laughs> um, but the, the funny thing was, and, it, and, it, and, I, and I don't want this to be misunderstood, I wasn't bitter about my place in life. 
I wasn't like one of those beaten down artists that is that was being a bike mechanic out of some kind of resign. Right. It was really to me it was always just an economic necessity. It was just an economic means to get me along. I never gave up. Well, it's so, well, that's what I it sounds and I think you're a diamond in the rough with that a little bit too is that you put the art first throughout the whole process. Yeah, well and, and I hope that I still do. I mean, hope that I always still will. Diamond I mean, in the rough. And and that's that's the thing. It's also like like teaching of like being very careful to try to pass that along. And that was one of the great thing about Bard too, is that amongst the, the bulk of the faculty, that was that was the focus. It's just like, you know what, you probably will never make it, but that doesn't mean that you have to stop. You know, to the like, to the artist, to, to to like the young, the, students, the young, yeah. the young aspiring artist of just being like, it's like, like I know you're gonna, I know you want to be famous and drive around in that limo, but let me tell you what it's really like. Well, I think you out know, of my class, out of my grad class, even I think there's only there's maybe five of us who are still making. Yeah. Oh well, that that's a reality. That's a reality that is not bad. That's 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 no. It's that's, just what it is. It's a reality that's also happens for many different reasons for many different people. Uh, a lot of people stop making just because they realize that they'd rather be a nurse or. That, I think there are a lot. Of, there's teachers. Sometimes there's... it's just self-destructive. Like you know, like Malcolm Mooney, the singer from Can, like stopping because it was tearing his soul apart or whatever. You know, it's like I didn't realize that. Yeah, well, his, his guru I think told him to stop. But but it was like of course. It was, but it was uh, but it was tearing him apart. You know, it's really really hard being an artist. I mean, that sounds like a sob sad like a sob story. No, it's a bitch. It's hard being me. Well, no, no, there's a it, shit ton of rejection. Yeah, there's no money. Yeah, and, and you are accountable to yourself and all of his. There's incredibly his little validation. Like, yeah, and it's 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 a rough life. You're under the microscope all the time, but you're mostly from yourself, and you have these insane expectations. You know, it's like you know you're constantly wavering between you know, divine inspiration and pitiful madness. I, I, I that's something I wrote to like one of my students who emailed me about about. Um, How did they take that? I, I hope they laughed. It was supposed to be funny. <laughs> Uh, but it was, it, you know, but it, but no, it, they're probably like, boy, John's bitter. <laughs> no, no, it's, no it, but it, it's rough life. So I, I can, I totally respect anyone who stops. I just don't, that's never been an option. Okay. So barred to USC, you came to USC, you were doing the grad program, you finished USC and you've been in LA since you stopped moving around. Yeah, boy, I've had the same studio and the same house for three years now. It's, Have you really? That's a, it's a real record. It's a real record. It's a record breaker. How fact. many years? years i feel like you're in a really good place i think you've figured out something for yourself and like how you you make the work and think about the work and show the work that has come together in a really wonderful way the paintings are absolutely beautiful they're really just they're hitting on like sort of a different level right now nice of you to say <laughs> it, it's to, i think it's um, totally true i went through i went through so many images of your work before you came over trying to sort of cram do my right, 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 right. My quick uh, your duty. My duty as to a, a know all your mm-hmm. all your shit. You should know more than I do, by the way. I I couldn't, and this is a this is a testament to sort of you as a, and I me being a painter as well too. Like I'm very critical of painters. Oh sure. Um, well, everyone is. I mean, everybody is. Everybody's critical. Everyone of knows everything painters. there is to know about painting. Yeah, and, and they, they all, they all you think they can judge you me. have a very vast range of work that you do. You have a very vast range of work that you do, but you also. Um, the work that you're producing is just across the board really, really good, John. So well, that's nice. Yeah. No, it 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 being being in this weird situation. What weird situation is that? Okay, so so here's here's the upside of of getting back to the very beginning conversation. The shift in sociality between the art world in New York and the art world in Los Angeles is yes, you don't have the intense criticality, and you don't have the opportunity for 
the very, very in-depth and intense conversations that one might have in New York. But what you do have is you're just living on your own planet. You have all this freedom to just like fuck up and become completely idiosyncratic and to really dive into, and this is this this can be super problematic, and I think that it, it, it only works to a certain extent in that it allows you to mine through and unpack a lot of your interior space to like to like to actually to actually sort through all your weird fucked up life experiences and make sense of it through your work where in new york that's a little harder to do because you're constantly engaging in this larger conversation um of the artists around you where here everyone's sort of an island and it's both sad and beautiful it's i mean you can definitely get lost you can definitely become i mean He's a great man, but you can definitely become Chris Burden. You know this. Yeah. this like this like isolated, bitter guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's um, again, I, that sounds horrible. He's uh, you know wonderful artist, but it's um, you can become too much of your own island here. It became this wonderful way of just like you can unpack everything that you've thought about and make use of it. You can kind of like spread out, not real estate wise, but you can spread out psychologically Mentally, here in yeah. a way that you can't in like, New York because you always have to keep it packed. It's, in it's hard to put a finger on it. Yeah. And so that has been really wonderful. And, and it's also been wonderful as a painter because painting history here is so weird. And being able to engage with and indulge in this not very well-known, very unusual painting history. But incredibly rich. But incredibly rich. You know, it was just completely surpassed by the Robert Irwins and like everyone who rejected painting. Right, right, right. Um, that, is, that is, you know, the general like Los Angeles art history is the rejection of painting. But there's so many people that just didn't reject painting and continued painting and did very interesting things partly because they were on their own weird islands, you know. At some point, I do want to be very conscious of undoing that, of like really trying to like get off that island before it, you know, before I sink with it, you know, before the waters rise and I just drown, you know. John, thank you so much for coming by, dude. Oh, um, yeah, thanks for having me. It's been wonderful to learn about your life and talk about your work. Yeah, I, I hope it was useful or interesting. <laughs> Highly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Have a good night. Yeah, you too. Bye.